Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. We're thrilled and honoured to have two of the country's greatest thinkers on our stage tonight. Political philosopher John Gray and psychoanalyst and author Adam Phillips. The inspiration for their conversation tonight is John's latest book, the Immortalization Commission. Just to begin with, John, um, it seems to me that the book, in some ways, is of a piece with straw dogs and black mass and so on, but also very different. Could you say something about how the book grew in your mind? The book is really differs from previous things I've written, in that uh, the core of it is two stories in which the questions or themes or philosophical issues, I think, are not added as commentary or interpretation, but are actually embedded in the lives of the people I describe. Um, The two stories are one which concerns a closely linked network of Victorian and Edwardian um, people, philosophers, scientists, poets, Um, men and women who for various reasons some of them very personal, others connected with their reaction against Darwinism or to Darwinism wanted to use science to show that human personality could survive bodily death and I was very intrigued by that because it seemed to me that one of the It said something about the time in which they lived, which was a time in which religion was losing the power to console, um, in which science was advancing, in which um, living standards were increasing, in which even longevity was increasing, but in which random death and the experience of loss that went with it was still very common. So women, for example, quite often lost one or more of their children in infancy or and experienced uh, loss or bereavement in an intensely agonizing way. And in fact, some of the people in the book are women who've taken up automatic writing, writing in which it seems as if another mind, sometimes identified as the mind of a deceased person, moves the pen and produces script. They've taken that up in order to contact um, children, even sometimes infant children, who died, and in other case, cases it was men and women who took it up to contact um, uh, lovers uh, that they'd had, uh, sometimes covertly, or even unconsummated love relationships which had never gotten anywhere but had been terminated by, by death. So I was sort of very intrigued by that for a whole variety of, um, of reasons connected with um, you know, what science is and how the idea of redemption remains very, very strong in secular cultures. The idea of redemption hasn't been abandoned at all. In the case of these Victorians and Edwardians, and I would say now, for that matter, uh, lots of people turn to science to do something it's, in my view, inherently incapable of doing, which is to provide some kind of redemptive um, release for 
ex, uh, or from experiences of, of, of final loss, of, 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 uh, of, uh, irreparable, of irreparable loss. And I, in the, in, among these Victorians and Edwardians, they, I think they turned to science for an exit from the world that science seemed to have revealed in Darwin, which was a world which everything was ephemeral, everything passed. Humans were like other animals. They came from, by chance, into the world, and each of them, when they died, died forever, and the species would be extinguished. And that vision was intolerable to a lot of people, including Darwin, actually, in some moods. Um, but they didn't go back to religion. They'd either, some of them had never had religion, others had uh, abandoned it and given it up and never went back. They turned to science for a cure, a remedy against what science had shown them, mm. seemed to have shown them to be true. So that seemed to me to be a terribly intriguing and interesting um, uh, story or set of stories um, because the themes that were being uh, disclosed are still with us. Which all, it's almost as though the, the book and this would be true of pre your previous books too, is trying to work out what it would be like to live as if what Darwin said was true. Yes, yes. And how actually very difficult that is, because, yes. what it, because it involves something you said. I mean, there are wonderfully lucid threads throughout the book in which Darwin keeps turning up as the man who's telling us about the fact that we die forever, the fact that species become extinct, the fact that the world is running down and so on. So that it's as though all we've got are ephemera, and yet the continual experience is one of loss. Yes. Now, if really all we have is ephemera, then there's no such thing as loss, or loss isn't quite the yes. right word. Yes. Because the implication is if we've lost it, we once had it. Yes. Whereas what the book seems to be saying is, what Darwin's showing is, is we've never had it. We haven't got it to lose. That's exactly, in a sense, that is exactly what I think the role of Darwin is in the book. I mean, I could put it in a slightly different way, but I think it's the same thought. What the book was partly trying to do was to um, peel away the veil that makes transience tragic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, because the way it was perceived and experienced is the idea of, of the, the transience of everything, the transitiveness of everything, the loss of everything we hold dear and precious, was perceived as insupportably tragic. Mm. And... Um, without the consolation of religion, uh, people then turned in Edwardian England to the idea that science could demonstrate that, in fact, human, the human personality, the human mind, didn't, didn't die, but went on. Almost as if, and some of them said this, I mean, the, the leading psychical researchers, there was also a popular religion of spiritualism, but the leading psychical researchers were a closely-knit elite group at the top of Edwardian society, some of them said you know, death means moving from one wing of a country house to another where you would find immortalized spectral servants who would serve you for eternity just as the ones you'd in your previous life. And they went on thinking that even despite the First World War where of course there was a huge cull of um, most of young men and, and others, uh, they went on uh, feeling that. The other side of the story is early Bolshevik Russia, which was similar but completely different in an important respect. Different in the experience, because the experience in, common experience in Russia from, let's say, 1914 to about 1920 was one of, in which an entire civilization dematerialized and millions and millions of people perished. And all around you, if you were one of the living, was random death, people lying in streets, uh, dead, animals dead in the streets, um, uh, people being dying of various diseases of starvation or of banditry and later on of terror. That was kind of normal. And interestingly, in that environment, there was no attempt to show that there was, there was no country house from which one could move from one wing to another. Uh, the country houses had been burned to the ground um, or uh, otherwise used. Um, it was rather that science could be used to, as it were, conquer death by force. Science could enable humans to be resurrected, or in the case of some mad ideas that Gorky took seriously for a, a while, mm -hmm. that humans could turn into thought energy or light, in which they didn't have bodies at all. He flirted with those, those ideas quite seriously, 
there's a there's a conversation I report in the book between him and the poet Alexander Bloch, in which Gorky says to Bloch, "Won't it be wonderful when science can enable us to shed our bodies and uh, just become nodes of of light?" And Bloch mm. replies, "What a ghastly thought! What a horrible thought! I feel the same, by the way. Fortunately, it'll never come true." Um, so there are all these sort of ideas around in a certain strand of the Bolshevik intelligentsia, about conquering death through science. But it was a different way. But it was also a reaction, a response to an experience of incredible loss. Yeah. Uh, loss of streets, buildings, names, children, lovers, husbands, wives, uh, almost everything, actually. Um, that those who, those, initially, those who, a, a section of the Bolshevik intelligentsia, who got interested in this, were interested in it before, but it survived through, I would say, till maybe the late 20s and played a role in, in, the, um, uh, in the way that Lenin was interred and then was sort of more or less forgotten about. Lenin himself, I should say, was, never had any time for it. Uh, he had utter contempt for this group which called the Bolshevik, the God Builders, and so did Stalin. Um, uh, he had contempt for it too. Although in Stalin's case, Stalin did flirt with the idea of breeding a new type of human being, or to be more precise, a new type of soldier, which wouldn't need to eat much or sleep much, and wouldn't have even the intermittent uh, responses of compassion or sympathy that hardened soldiers have. He did think, in other words, that was his idea of the Superman. Uh, he did have that idea, but they didn't. They weren't part of the group. The part of the group that included the God Builders was Gorky, Lunacharsky the first um, Commissar of Enlightenment. Uh, that was his title. He was a, um, a former disciple, and not so former either, of Madame Blavatsky, the theosophist, and also someone called uh, Krasin, who was the Soviet trade minister. So there was a group quite highly placed in the Bolshevik party, or close to it, uh, who had these ideas. One of the rather moving things about the book is that the book is also full of love stories, mm. actually. It's partly, I mean, in terms of psychical research, is people trying to re-engage with loved people who've died, or children who've died, or whatever. There's also a tremendously powerful love affair between Moura and H.G. Wells in the middle of the book. Mm. But the other thing it seems to me that the book raises the question of is two linked things. One is why it's so difficult to live in an anti-redemptive culture, mm. what, what the problem is about that. Mm. But also the question of whether... It's actually a great love of life to want to transform it or a great hatred of life. Mm. Because on the one hand, you think, well, the actual political and physical conditions of the Russian peasants was catastrophic and terrible, mm. as it was for the Chinese peasants, so Mao. So on the one hand, we think, well, here's a man like Lenin or a man like Mao who comes along and wants to radically transform manifestly terrible conditions. Mm. And in one sense, it seems, well, why wouldn't one want to do that? Mm. And, and you could, as indeed Lenin believed, the means justify the ends. But nevertheless, mm. the feeling is, when you read the book, is, is it that these people love life so much they as well want to get the best out of it mm. by living forever? Or do they hate it so much that they need to do apocalyptically redemptive things to make it worth living? I think there was something of the latter in, in some of these um, Bolshevik figures. In your book, Adam... Um, uh, Darwin's Worms, a, a wonderful book, which I enjoyed very much and learned a lot from. You mentioned something that John Cage said about human suffering, mm. which might shock a lot of people, but someone says, why are you doing this? Uh, I'm doing it to reduce the amount of suffering in the world. And Cage said, well, Cage said, well, there's exactly the right amount of suffering in the world. A shocking remark, as it were, you might think. Um, but it's relevant to these uh, Bolsheviks, including Stalin, because one of the things we now know about Stalin is that he annotated Dostoevsky's novel Devils or the Possessed. And in Dostoevsky's novel Devils or the Possessed, there are these sort of pre-Nietzschean idea, notions of a superhuman human being uh, that would transcend ordinary morality. But then here's a key point. Would no longer suffer in the way that humans had suffered before. And some of the annotations of Stalin are of the form like one of Dostoevsky's anti-heroes, the kind of person Dostoevsky invented in order to demonize or hate, uh, says something like, well, the only real virtue is energy expressed in power. That's what Dostoevsky hated, but Stalin writes exactly right in the margin. 
And so what he was interested in, I think, in those, that was when he, he did this, when he wrote these marginal, when he was at the seminary in, in Georgia, um, is um, not so much with mitigating human suffering as in building a kind of human being that couldn't suffer. And that I take, it's like, it, that I take as a kind of anti-human response, which is that it, it, it's rather than seeing suffering, even one's own suffering, even when it's overwhelming, as part of a life that can go on, mm. um, not necessarily by anything, finding anything redemptive in it, but by uh, suffering all that goes with it, the bereavement, everything, the collapse of hopes and so on, and then starting again and doing something else. Um, rather than seeing that, the idea is to alter the human animal or alter the human engagement with the world so that one cannot suffer. But it's paradoxical, isn't it? Because the more mm. hatred there is of suffering, the mm. more suffering is created through that hatred. Very much so. That, that in the wish to create an invulnerable figure, yes. as Gorky says it, and you quote in the book, they have to be, people have to be purged of their imperfections. Yes. Which but, effectively means mutilated, killed, or, or genetically redesigned. It could come out in various political ways. Gorky, there's a letter of Gorky, um, I quote in the book, where he says, yes, we've got to, we've got to as we have better human beings. And in, the, in this, he writes, I think, to Stalin. Stalin didn't need much encouragement. He says, we mustn't ha- allow obsolete moralities to interfere with our experimenting on human units. He said, we need lots of human units. Fortunately, there were lots of human units around that uh, could be used. And we know now that they were used for experiments. We, uh, we used on uh, things like anthrax and so on, from, from at least from 1924. So there's, that's kind of one, but there's a, there's a kind of a less extreme, or maybe not less extreme, but less obviously malign, but still malign way, I think, in which this idea of no longer suffering can create terrible suffering, which is that in which all of one's, all of a person's uh, features that that person or other persons regard as somehow liabilities or whatever are seen as tremendous obstacles to redemption. In other words, the pursuit of redemption from being the sort of creature one is, fallible, vulnerable, to all kinds of terrible loss and not knowing whether one can go on or not. I mean, seeing redemption from that imposes a whole new layer of suffering. Yeah, or an impossible demand, a humiliating demand. A humiliating demand, and with that humiliating demand, another layer, layer of suffering. And so the question you mentioned, Alan, which is, you know, can we imagine what it would be to live as if Darwin was right. Well, Darwin couldn't consistently imagine no, it himself no. because although in his diary he writes somewhere, never use higher or lower, in his other writings, for example, in the celebrated last page of um, Origin of Species, he talks about evolution in strictly Victorian terms of progress to perfection. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if that's true, you can look back at the sort of waste of evolution and you can say, well, it's all leading to something wonderful, us. And beyond us, something perhaps even more wonderful. But if it really is going nowhere, which is actually the logic and the the deeper meaning of natural selection, then it is sheer transience. And so the problem and drift, so the question then is how meaning and uh, fulfillment can be found in human life in the context of a clear-eyed recognition of... um, transience and drift as or, being... Yes, or even what fulfilment would be in that context. Even what fulfilment would be. And that, I think, is something which... Um, I mean, if the book has a, a heroine, I think, or a hero, I think there are two. One of them is the woman that uh, Adam mentioned a moment, Mura Budberg, who um, ended up as H.G. Um, uh, Wells' partner, having been Gorky's partner, and uh, before Gorky, uh, the partner of a British... Uh, unofficial representative in Russia. And one of the things I find her, uh, although she did things which, including allowing herself to be planted on Wells and before Wells, um, Gorky, by the, by the uh, secret police with whom she had sort of ongoing relationship. Uh, one of the reasons I think she's a, a heroic figure, although what she did was sometimes many people found questionable, including allowing, including Wells, who, when he discovered it, was completely devastated that she'd been uh, planted on him. Um, When he says that, when he spent a night with her, when he was visiting Gorky, he said, I had a night of passion, I loved her, I believed the 
love was returned and I believed every single word she ever said to me and he later found that a lot of it was um, false um, but I think she is an heroic figure one of the things that is heroic about her is the way in which she could she discarded or um, shed or even killed earlier self images mm. of herself I mean she came from an aristocratic background mm. her husband she married it went to court under the czars and so on. Her husband was killed in a peasant rising. She then was left with absolutely nothing, could easily have starved, um, could have ended up, as young women sometimes did, working for the secret police in, in trapping visiting foreigners and uh, then ending up in the camps when they got to know too much. Um, but she didn't. She kept shedding her older selves for the sake, and in particular, she never identified the, the selves that kept emerging with her self-image. She kept changing mm. that. And I found that kind of um, ability to, uh, which some would say was sheer opportunism, I found that ability very um, attractive. And it's embodied, by the way, I should say, in, in, in something which is one of the reasons I included her in the book, and one of the reasons I was interested in her, um, in 1970. I heard a radio interview with her, which remained in my mind for several decades later. And in the interview, she quoted a palmist who'd, um, and I subsequently acquired later, got a copy of this interview, um, got a tape of it. Um, she had a palmist, she said what a palmist said to her, it must have been a very intelligent palmist. And the palmist said, your biography has been overrun, sorry, your personality has been overrun by your bi biography. It's a kind of rather profound observation, isn't it? In other words, what she meant was, uh, I think, that the personal characteristics were, were um, uh, over, overrun by, uh, by events, by events. Mm -hmm. Now, it's sort of partly true. I didn't believe entirely when I heard it. And so years later, I looked into uh, her a bit and read about her. I even met some people who'd known her. And uh, I found her a very attractive figure. So she is one of the heroes. There is another hero. I mean, a lot of the book is rather dark in many ways, but another a man called... Jogi Faludi, a German, uh, a Hungarian poet, who was always filled with a fear of annihilation and death, but who responded to that by risking death in the most dangerous possible ways, um, staying on in Hungary till the last minute. The Nazis came, he was Jewish, he fled. Going back to Hungary after the war as a poet, he was anti-communist and refused to write a, um, an ode on Stalin's birthday, ended up in a camp. And of the several hundred people that went in with he did, when he did, only about 20 survived. So in that period, he knew all about death and dying. He lived until he was 95, by the way. He came out, he survived, he went to Canada, uh, continued his work as a poet. And his way of dealing with um, mortality, if you like, with his own potential death, was almost, was to... Um, how could one put it, was to, was to encounter the absolutely real risk of not just death, but a terrible death, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not something that many of us can emulate, mm -hmm. uh, but I found it tremendously um, uh, attractive. I mean, another <clears throat> way of putting it, I suppose, would be that Moore and Falodi were people who were not addicted to special images of themselves. That's it. That they were, in a sense, adaptable and could move, as it were, with the times. Yes. It seems to me one of the many interesting things in this book, in its pushing the Darwinian position, is it makes you realise how much work, cultural work, has gone into making us feel special. Mm. That we are individually special and that the species mm. is special. Mm. And... From Darwin's point of view, obviously, this is ludicrous. And yet, mm. it's very difficult for us to imagine mm. how we would live or conceive of ourselves mm. as not special. It's Can I say one bit? Mm. Just one bit Go more. on. Just to finish, because it, one thing that struck me, this is a bit of a sideline in a way, and more to do with my profession, I think, than yours. But I was thinking of this in relation to children and how difficult it would be to grow up as a child not feeling in some way special to your parents. Mm. Or as though one of the projects in growing up is to try and be special to your parents in mm. some way. So that it's as though Darwin confronts us with a, I don't know what it is, maybe it's an irony, which is that as children, we try and need to be special. Mm. And as Darwinian adults, we need not to be 
and in trying to be, we fail. Mm. That that's the catastrophe. And the, so the, the catastrophe is we find out that... That we're nothing special. That we're Darwinian creatures. Yeah, like everything else. Like everything else. Yeah. And, and it's very hard to actually... Not many people um, survive that catastrophe fully intact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... Yes, I think there's I think a lot... Of, I mean, the one way, I suppose, in which we are special is evidenced in this very conversation and in some of the things Darwin wrote, which is that the human animal seems to have an awareness, each of us has an awareness of our mortality that other animals don't seem to have. They may have some notion of death, and I believe I've read that the a concept of death can be taught to chimps, some sort of concept. They might not have it to start with, but they can be taught it. But what it seems that no other animal does have is this sense of... Um, uh, mortality running throughout their lives, the sense of having a limited lifespan which comes to some sort of inexorable end and then resisting that in all kinds of ways, whether through myths of bodily resurrection in Christianity or um, Platonistic ideas that we have a soul or a spark of consciousness that goes on after we die and this is by the way this notion or version of it I think has recently been revived by um, immortalists such as Ray Kurzweil any of you heard of him an American who quite influential who seriously proposes I say seriously because he's written a diet book about how to diet so that you live long enough to become immortal it's called Transcend if you want to get it on the internet I'm not making this up, it's actually true. Check on Google when you get back home. Uh, but the, his idea is that we can use diet and um, preventive medicine to stay alive long enough to the point at which technology will have developed so that our conscious spark, our minds, can be uploaded into a virtual world where it will be immortal and where we can have, instead of just having one frail aging body, we can have as many bodies as we like, of as many genders as we like, and uh, we will be invulnerable. Now, apart from anything else, it's a sort of internet-age version of the spiritualist summerland, I think, in many ways. Apart from anything else, you know, what immediately occurs to me, apart from the sort of inherent, inherent absurdity of it, is, is um, we now know, of course, that the cyberspace is not a realm of peace or invulnerability. It's a realm of continuous warfare, disinformation. You might get up there or some sliver of yourself suddenly find your, your disk erased and, uh, or, or you're attacked in some kind of way. We know that cyberspace now is, is a battlefield. So there's no way out that way. And yet it's, or any way, but it's per perennially attractive. Now it's not quite, I should say, it's not quite universally attractive because of course there are religions and philosophies and forms of mysticism that far from wanting personal immortality mm. want to extinguish personal identity. And the immortality that's then achieved, if it is a form of immortality, is not the immortality of the person that once was. Yeah. That person has vanished forever. But there is some continuing uh, non-material reality, some Platonistic idea or uh, um, universal consciousness of some kind into which that consciousness is disappeared. So it's not absolutely universal. That also, if I just interrupt for a second, mm. there's a very interesting bit in the book, mm. a brief bit, where you talk about suicide mm. and talk about how in Christianity it was a sin, yes. now it's become a sin against humanity, mm. as in you're really letting the side down yes. when you do this. Um, it seemed to me that... It's how, it's how if you kill yourself, you're, you're making all the rest of us depressed. Yeah, exactly. So, you're, you're attacking yeah. the rest of us with your depression. Absolutely. All our and we can't stand it, so I'm not going to let you kill yourself. We're going to inflict therapy on you to make you permanently yeah. cheerful. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're going to do. Yeah, as though, you know, with alcoholics, everybody's got to drink. Mm. As though the, it, can never, it could never be a rational decision that actually one's life was unbearable, or life was unbearable. Or even that, it was just boring. Or whatever, yeah, but unbearable yes. in whatever form, not yes. worth living one yeah. way or another. Yes. Because in one of the, uh, point towards the end of the book, you talk about the revelations of science as being what science reveals is the absurd. Mm. And there are sort of intimations in the book, not of exactly of sort of Camus, but there are mm. intimations in the book that 
it's a, one of the real questions that Darwin raises is, um, why, why, why is our wish to survive so tenacious? Mm. So this is taken for granted. First of all, survival and reproduction. Mm. Well, one of the things we can do is question both those things. Mm. And those, the, the questioning may be ephemeral, but nevertheless, it's integral. Mm. So we could, for example, imagine a world in which we taught children in school, slightly older children, um, the suicide issue. Mm. You know, how do you know your life's worth living? What makes it worth mm. living? What would not make it worth living? Mm. Why would you keep yourself alive if you didn't mm. want, etc., etc.? Mm. But no one would consider that for a second. No. And it's as though then there's a, a sense in which the Darwinian position becomes not exactly religious, but it becomes a description of another tenacious fact, as though, of course, it doesn't have, but as though it's a moral prescription. Although it's an imperative. Yes, imperative. We have to survive and we have to reproduce. And indeed, if we have any doubts about either, we are um, sick, anti-life, or in some sense, as you've given up the human project, or even the project of life itself. It's an interesting question, why... Education could never be like that. I mean, I suppose you would only need one suicide to occur, which it was reasonably thought might not have occurred otherwise. For I mean, it wouldn't last long in the big society, would it? Um, you would only have one, and suddenly there would be an immediate, yeah. an immediate uh, chop up. Backlash. So that, there would be immediate backlash. That because it would be seen as preaching suicide. Yeah. Yes. The implication is that people could get a taste for it. Mm. or that people would be responsive to it, mm. which, of course, they would be. There's a story I remember in, uh, by um, Patricia Highsmith, I think called All That Meets the Eye, which is about an attractive, successful um, woman uh, who's had a good life. And until you reach the end of the story, you don't realise she's in a Swiss hotel, one or two men try and make her acquaintance, and someone pledges eternal love to her. And she's very polite and very... Um, uh, um, uh, 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 kind to them, but unyielding in her lack of interest in them. Uh, she enjoys the, uh, uh, the weather and the food, and she loves the uh, beautiful sky and the, the feeling of the uh, wind on her skin, but she's come there to commit suicide. And she does commit suicide at the end of the story. And what I suppose is sort of chilling to some people about the story is that no reason is given, no tragedy, no horror, no slowly germinating terminal illness, no reasons given at all. It's just that she's fed up with life. Now that's the ultimate, as it were, blasphemy for a certain type of humanist sensibility because you can have an obligation to find life worth living. Uh, you're, you're going on strike. You're a scab. Uh, um, uh, and that's, I suppose, and, but it's, it's, I, I recommend, it's in one of her collections of stories, I recommend that you read it because it's very well portrayed. Winnicott, the um, British psychoanalyst, said, if somebody comes to me and says they want to commit suicide, yeah. I don't dissuade them, I just want to make sure they do it for a good reason. <laughs> well, I put it in a different way, it's practically always a bad idea. Um, so, especially if you're young, because many of the things that you think are insoluble turn out to be quite trivial. So it's better to live on and give, give the dice another throw. Uh, but um, the idea that there is this kind of four-Darwinian idea, the turning of, of a theory into a moral imperative, the idea that we are actually gene machines, therefore we ought to be gone surviving come what may, um, is... Um, see, what attracts me about Mura and Faludi is, of course, they were survivors. Um, Faludi lived till he was 90, 95, and Mura lived when practically everyone else she knew from her generation perished. Um, but she didn't just survive. No, she more than survived. She much more than survived. She wasn't seeking security. For example, Wells wanted to marry her. Um, she refused. He said, well, all right, live with me. She said, no, I won't live with you either. Uh, he said, well, um, be my partner. I won't be your partner. He said, well, at least give me my key back. And she said, I'm not giving you my key back. She never gave him it back. Um, she could have had financial security with him, but didn't want it. She wanted to be, uh, be the person she was and to change what she was when she felt like changing it. Um, that was at least one of the reasons she refused to do it. I found that immensely. She, she, didn't, she wasn't simply a kind of, even though she mocked Wells, actually, when Wells challenged her as to why she'd done what she did, allowed herself to be planted on him, she said, Wells, we get this from Wells' son, 
uh, he, whom he told, Wells told, said, Wells, aren't you a biologist? He said, yes. He said, well, don't you know the only law of survival? Um, but actually, she didn't just survive. She, she kept on refashioning herself and reinventing her life in interesting ways. Mm. So I do, I do very much... Uh, uh, in a sense, it's all a commentary on, on Darwin and Darwinism, all of these lives, and many of them, by the way, especially Wells, but lots of others, in, they all refer to Darwin quite explicitly. Mm. This is not an interpretive gloss that I've put on the story. <coughs> they all mention Darwin, uh, the people involved in all this. And they and they nearly all, nearly all, Wells didn't actually, but they nearly all falsify Darwin's message by turning it into a theory of progress. Well, so they're in shock, isn't it? After reading Darwin, it yes. is actually so shocking that it gets transformed into its opposite all the time. As I think it still is, because yeah. there is a kind of common view, well, uh, which some people nowadays take, they say, well, Darwin's shown that we're animals and shown that we came about by chance. But we, who's we, by the way, but we can because we're not the species, the species doesn't exist any, for us any more than it does for tigers or dolphins, can't act. We will inject purpose mm. and meaning into human history, which so far may have been just drift, but we will do this. And if you say, well, that's an illusion, again, that would seem, it's, that's like letting the side down on suicide. Mm. Um, say, well, we want to make human life better than it's ever been before. If well, the non-purpose of life is taboo, effectively. Isn't yes. It? The non-teleological life, the life that has no direction. Our actual lives. Our actual lives. Whereas Darwin says there is no direction. Our actual lives are taboo. Actual human history is taboo. Mm. Um, Actual human human experience is taboo. Well, I think on that note, perhaps, (laughs) we should open this up to the audience. Do feel free not to ask a question. I'm afraid I haven't read your book, but um, I have actually written a book of my own about immortality, and um, I'm a trend forecaster, amongst other things, and it's called Trends Beyond Life in Search of Immortality, and it's about how um, we can achieve immortality um, through the things we collect or through um, leaving things behind on the internet, Um, and... I wanted to know um, from you, um, it sounds as though you may be... From both of us, yeah. Uh, uh, maybe mm. an atheist, or you may, you may be atheist, may not have um, a religious um, leaning um, in, in the way that you're presenting your argument. Um, first of all, I want to ask you that, you know, where are you coming from in terms of your own beliefs? Um, for the afterlife, of the afterlife, and that sort of thing. And also, have you read um, the book um, Man's Search for Meaning? Yes, I have. Victor Frankl, because I think that reminded me of you mentioned the Hungarian poet, Mm. um, and that reminded me very much of that. Mm. Frankl. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Shall I? Why don't you go first? Um, Well, I try to avoid belief as much as I can, as others avoid boredom. but I act on the basis that death is the end, that bodily death is the end of anything that's recognizable as myself. So that's the basis on which I act. Um, and I'm not, I mean, if, I suppose a different question would be, supposing there was some aspirin-like pill one could take which would guarantee um, indefinite longevity. In other words, would you know, stop the aging process. Supposing there were such a thing, supposing it was cheap, supposing it wasn't just really like aspirin, would I take it or not? Um, I'm not at all sure I would, because it would change so much in my life. It would change... uh, Someone who's in the book, Edward Thomas, has a perhaps sort of rather highfalutin-sounding phrase, but I like it. He talks about the um, immortal beauty of mortal things. And if one sort of... If one felt... Quasi-immortal. I mean, one would literally be immortal if one took such a pill, because one could still be killed or still commit suicide or, or whatever. One wouldn't be. Li- but if if one were uh, freed from aging, freed from um, uh, the kind of processes that occur in everything on Earth, then I think I would lose a, a large part of, um, of of what makes life worth living. I, for me, it would be a loss, not a gain doesn't mean I want to grow old even faster than I am, by the way, but uh, 
Um, but the idea of an indefinite longevity, um, a kind of technological surrogate for immortality, um, doesn't appeal to me. I, I mean, I feel similarly. I, um, it seems to me that there's a, it's a strange idea that, for example, we have a limited lifespan. Because we don't have a limited lifespan, we have a lifespan. And that there is something about that fact that is very, very important. It's like Henry James's definition of the real. It's that which it is impossible not to know. So somewhere one knows it. So I have no belief or interest in immortality. I'm interested in fantasies of immortality mm. and what they are a self-cure for. That mm. strikes me as very interesting. Mm. Um, I do think that it's difficult to live without beliefs, although it's difficult to know what beliefs are. Mm. I mean, it's a very interesting thing we were talking about before. Mm. Wittgenstein has a sentence where he asks, it's a question, which is, is belief an experience? Meaning, what are you actually doing when you're believing something? It was well, one of his rare jokes. By yes, way. it was. It was a good joke. Well, you're living as if something is true. Now, it seems to me, given actually it's impossible not to identify with the suffering of other people, mm. it's very difficult not to believe in some idea of justice and fairness. So those things seem to me to be important. They don't need to be validated by some superior intelligence or by life having a purpose. It seems to me, as an end in itself, it is good to be kind and not humiliate people. And I just want to say that's just what I believe. I can't prove it, but I believe it. So there would be, there would be definitely parameters to and versions of what was acceptable and unacceptable. But that, for me, would be the only game in town, yeah. which was how to be a good person within the real constraints of what it is to live a real life. I'll just add to that. I mean, by beliefs, I really meant something like justifications. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, when people say, can you justify this? I, I often say, to, to whom and for what? For what purpose? Um, I mean, beliefs or just or beliefs, to me, are habits. And sometimes habits are very useful, uh, um, often, in fact, but to be trapped in them, and especially the habit of justification, I don't see why anyone should. I mean, if you, I mean, we might impose a demand of justification for some of the reasons Adam suggested. If someone is being cruel or tyrannizing, we might say, well, uh, we're going to impose some limit on them, make them justify what they're doing. So I don't see it's always irrelevant. It's like this demand that dictators or tyrants be accountable. Of course, tyrants, the last thing a tyrant wants is to be accountable. And many escape accountability by, by death. But I can see that as being very important. But beyond that, the idea that one has to justify one's life. Or that it could be justified. Or that it could be justified. To whom or to what? Yeah. I mean, it, it implies that there is some kind of authority or you know, all humanity or God or or some theory or principle that one invokes and says, well, as a result of this theory, this is, I, I can justify how I'm living. I think that's an absurdity. I, don't think, I, I mean, I think the answer to that is, um, I don't see any need to justify my life to anyone else, unless it involves um, the kinds of transgressions of common human sympathy, if you like, yeah. that I mentioned earlier, yeah. that, or that Adam mentioned. And you could think of beliefs simply as provisional tools. Mm. They're... Um, gadgets or things you use to deal with specific situations. Nux. Nux. Yes, exactly. Nux. Or talents. But the, the wish to have beliefs that would, as it were, transcend circumstance or time would seem to be very misleading. Mm. Mm. And that's another one which Darwin's very helpful mm. because he shows you how much everything you need, want, and believe is to do with an adaptation to a specific survival yes. question. Yes. Thank you very much for the talk. I, interestingly, you touched on suicide and you touched on depression. And uh, recently, as a psychiatrist myself, I realized that you mentioned the quest for cheating death. There's a quest for happiness and in a way cheating suffering. And we try to use science and try to measure happiness, try to use pills to make people happy, try to use again, uh, talking therapies to make people happy, all these, and even in one meeting I saw an eminent economist telling that we are evolved to be happy. I just wanted to know your opinion on happiness and how do you think that it is replacing immortality in the way that you are investing science and knowledge and all, all these things on it. Thank you. Well, I guess the question I ask is, 
similar to, similar to one at least that Adam has asked in some of his writings, which is, what are we trying to get rid of in ourselves when we want to be happy? I mean, the pursuit of happiness is a flight from something. What's it a flight from? I mean, people might deny that. They might say, all I've got are wonderful visions of being better, being more loved, being more loving, being more beautiful, being more successful, being more etc. More kind even. And that's happiness for me. So I'll, I'll try, I'm, that's what I'm pursuing. But I think almost inescapably, there's something which is, or a variety of things, which are inspiring the pursuit, driving the pursuit along. And they are things that the, the person who's desperately seeking happiness um, is trying to leave behind. Or trying not to remember, to forget, or to somehow retell in a different way. Mm. That makes them a stage towards some future condition of happiness. Now, Freud is good on this in some ways. Okay. Kind of rather, um, some people take this as a terrible um, kind of thing that Freud wrote, but or, well, I take it as one of his jokes, which is that there's a letter which Alan can probably quote more accurately than I can, but in which he writes of a patient of his. He says, with you know, a great deal more kind of uh, hard work and rigorous analysis, this patient can move from hysterical misery and finally achieve the ordinary unhappiness of daily life. <laughs> it's something like that, isn't it? Yeah. The hysterical misery replaced by common human unhappiness. Common human unhappiness. <laughs> now, I think if that was proposed um, as a sort of end of various therapies now, it would be considered ex- uh, unnecessarily modest. Um, or even, even disempowering or you know, whatever kind of uh, jargon you want, want to use. And it doesn't mean actually that he... I don't think it actually means that um, he's recommending or even submitting to common human unhappiness. He's pointing to, um, uh, I guess, a kind of an oddity, an anomaly in the idea that any technique, including psychoanalysis, can deliver happiness. Mm. Mm. Or he's asking a question about what does it deliver? If, even if it did deliver happiness, what would it be that it delivered? I mean, what would the person have if they then they turned around? I mean, imagine, imagine the, uh, someone saying to you, I had eight years of psychoanalysis. Did it work? Oh, yes, I've been happy ever since. There'd be something odd about that. Yeah, I mean, you? if you were happy, you'd be out of touch with reality. I mean, you couldn't be happy and watch the news, for example. I mean, it would be bizarre. Yes. So that... You, in a way, it seems to me, it's a terrible moral distraction and a trivial value. It might be something that happens to you, and it, then it's wonderful. But the idea that it would be your aim or your desire mm. strikes me as really morally corrupt. Mm. <laughs> you could say, well, how long is it going to take? And someone said, well, I think I might actually make it in about 13 years. It might take 14. You know, um, isn't that funny? I mean, don't you, I mean uh, the whole idea of pursuing happiness... I think, in that way. I mean, there may be obstacles to a person's, in a person's life that they feel they can't, they can't really thrive as a person unless those obstacles are somehow removed. Mm. That's one thing. But the idea that uh, there is a, a happy person within them, within each of them, that is somehow being thwarted uh, uh, is, I think, a kind of illusion that, that Freud was... Um, uh, very, very conscious of. And it's connected also, I mean, with what, you see, supposing one, one, some version of oneself was immortalized in the sense that what, it came back or was in cyberspace or as the psych, some of the psycho researchers believe went on after one died. As one, di- one died in bodily, where one was buried, one's body disintegrated or was cremated. But some um, version of oneself went on. Would that be the happy self one had failed to be? Would it be a self that was unhappy? There's some evidence, by the way, if I can call it evidence, that Sidgwick faced this issue himself because although at the end of uh, Sidgwick, one of the figures in the book, perhaps one of the most Henry Sidgwick, Cambridge philosopher, perhaps the best um, and deepest moral philosopher of the 19th century, certainly in England, much more interesting than John Stuart Mill, for example. But he spent about several decades of his life trying to demonstrate um, that human, human personality survived bodily death. And towards the end of his life, he wrote to someone and said, I haven't found anything. All these years have been completely wasted. I've found absolutely nothing. But he sort of left open. He said, well, if, but if I'm wrong, I'll be back in touch. And uh, well, he died. Nothing happened for a while. And then texts started emerging. 
from var in various automatists all over the world, thousands of pages eventually, some of them rather tetchy philosophical argumentation against people who disagreed with them. But one of the ones I like, and I quote in the, in the, in the, uh, in the book, is when he says, um, well, I found what I was looking for. I wanted evidence, and this is evidence. I mean, he meaning the persona. I'm not saying there was such a thing. Uh, I found what I wanted, but I remain completely baffled. <laughs> I remain as perplexed as I was in life. And I sort of imagined him in some Cambridge combination room coming to and turning around and saying, how long have you been here? He said, 800 years. Do you know why we're here? No, no one does. Uh, you know, one can sort of, that's almost the, you know, what, what would it be that survived? What, what riddle would be solved? What meaning would be disclosed if we did go on? Might we not find ourselves in an environment uh, as, as baffling as the one we actually live in already? Or more. Or more baffling even, Yes. Might be, might, that might not be, even be more uh, resistant to certain aspects of ourselves, especially since it might become clear whether they were there forever. Oh, quite. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you had a spot on your, on your posthumous nose, I mean, you're going to have that forever. I'm joking, but you see what I mean. Conscious decision um, to focus on the Abrahamic linear philosophy. On the what? Abrahamic linear uh, philosophical, uh, philosophical premise, because if there was, then perhaps the title of the lecture would be better on, on the Western world's search for immortality. It seems to me a lot of the questions that you're asking are relevant only to the Western philosophical schools. Well, um, there's something in what you say, because... Um uh, there are traditions in Buddhism, as I mentioned earlier, well, traditions I mean, where, of, uh, where immortality is associated with the extinction of personal identity. There's that. But the pursuit of even physical mortality is, because in many, many cultures, Chinese alchemy, certain strands of Chinese alchemy, pursued it for thousands of years. What they wanted was physical. It might not be the exact body, or it might be some kind of version of an alchemical body. Mm. But they, so I actually think, although it's not equally displayed in all cultures, and although some people are, don't have it at all, I think the, um, um, the, the impulse towards some kind of personal immortality and whole philosophies um, uh, developing around it is in pretty well all cultures to some degree, actually. Thinking of different types of immortality, um, seven types of immortality. Uh, and I haven't seven. read your book, so... Uh, it reminds me, though, that some of the Chinese um, and the Koreans and the Japanese have uh, the convention of the land of the immortals. Which of the what? Of the immortals. Mm -hmm. they, they want to become immortal. And so their desire in life is to get to the land of the immortals, represented by, as an island they have to swim or sail to. And um, when they get there, if they're if they lead a beneficent life, uh, they only want to live 10,000 years for the reasons that you have already mentioned. In other words, after that, you, you lose your friends and your interest becomes boring. But I think that, uh, as I understood Hannah Arendt making the case for Roman immortality, um, so in the Western tradition, uh, as against the Christians, um, it, the immortality was living through your deeds, your memories, poets, your works of art, what you leave afterward in the minds of other people. And that was the really key notion that uh, culture uh, reified. So your fleeting life would at least uh, be immortalized. And the Christians, when they came along, faced with uh, all these good works, uh, made the point that, well, immortality is something, but it's actually minor because what we're giving you is eternity. And so they trumped immortality with eternity. Um, and as famously um, Woody Allen said, eternity gets rather long, especially towards the end. Um, in any case, it seems to me that when you, uh, when you mediate between these seven types of immortality, the Western, the Chinese, one tends to smuggle in, in an unconscious way, immortality. And, in, and I haven't read your book, but you mentioned two or three times uh, 
that these exemplary two people were heroes, heroines. And the hero, traditionally, is searching for a kind of struggle with life and the, and the other, and um, overcomes the hero, overcomes the other, and then is immortalized in the, by the poet or by the writer or someone. So in a way, you've smuggled back, uh, for you, no, an exemplar, you may not have meant to, but okay. You, 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 you oscillated between the hero and affection. You said you have affection for these people. You, you admire them, admiration. Right. But what yeah. I admire in them, I just say what I admire in them, is that neither of them wanted to be immortalized. Uh, neither of them showed any interest in being immortalized. Neither of them did anything in order to become immortalized. They wanted to live their lives as interestingly as they could and not to die before their time, particularly at someone else's bidding. But um, they didn't want to be um, um, immortalized. I mean, I think, I'm glad you mentioned, though, the kind of Roman and pre-Christian. I mean, the, 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 there was an idea in pre-Christian Europe of, um, of being immortalized by one's deeds or by one's imprint on the culture. But an interesting thing about that is, I think, the idea that cultures were mortal had not penetrated yet. I think, you know, there's no sense in Homer, certainly, and I would say probably not even in, I don't know, but perhaps not even in Plato. There's no sense that a whole way of life, a whole way of thinking, can be finally mortal and can disappear from the world. And that's partly because the sense of there being a whole diversity of cultures with beginnings, middles, and ends is sort of lacking in the ancient world. So I suppose it was more possible for them than it is for us uh, to uh, think of um, uh, immortality in that way. Now, the way in which moderns think about this, um, I remember Bertrand Russell, who was John Stuart Mill's godson, said there was a catechism in his home, which is that immortality is the good thoughts that people have about you when you are dead. Repeat that again. So that's the kind of secular humanist idea of immortality. Immortality is what sort of... And the idea there that now, I suppose, is that one defeats the mortality of cultures by an upward spiral of progress. So nothing which is valuable in this culture, even if it's replaced by some other culture later on, nothing which is valuable, including the memories others have of us, will be, will be lost. But that, of course, is an illusion. But there is a, I mean, but that's, you're absolutely right, that's a completely different view from the view which I suppose Christianity brought in, although it was assimilated to the Greek view to some extent, which is that of um, the resurrection or, the some, or, the, or somehow the, the, uh, um, the non-disappearance. I mean, once a soul was created, it was there forever. I mean, that was, that was at least one version in Paul. Or in the earlier version of the Jesus cult, which, as far as I can tell, was actually a heterodox form of Judaism until Paul invented Christianity, um, was that um, some people were brought back from the dead by God, as the people they had been, but without decaying corruption. That's it. And those ideas really aren't, I think, among the Romans no, or the Greeks that's right. practically at all. But it, it is an interesting question what the wish for immortality inspires. Hmm. Because when, say, Milton writes Paradise Lost, he is, as he says, questing for immortality. So that it, from a secular point of view, it would be interesting to think, what kind of lure is this, such that, as an aspiration, you think it brings out the best in you? Mm. Which certainly, in the Renaissance, was the case for those Renaissance poets. And that's something that, you know, as far as Tennyson... I mean, Tennyson writes a poem called Tithonus, which mm. is about a person who can't die and how tormenting this is. Mm. But Tennyson, at the same time, is writing Idols of the King, which he hopes will make him immortal. Or to take a different example, I don't know how many of you read the wonderful story by Borges, Funes the Memorias. It's about someone who can't forget anything, has the immortality of their own lives, everything that's ever happened to them, everything that they've ever known, everything that they've ever thought of, everything that they've ever read, anything they've ever seen, is indelibly imprinted and accessible to them. And, And it's a nightmare, of course. In other words, what we want, it seems, as human beings, includes forgetfulness of large tracts of our lives. Now, how would that be possible in, with immortality? Back to the Greeks, just mentioned. In Homer, um, there's a wonderful episode. 
in which um, two gods bored with immortality uh, uh, embody themselves as carrion birds and watch the violent wars that they've stirred up. And in Homer, the only reason for this amusement is boredom. Now, we wouldn't associate that kind of behavior or that kind of motivation with God, would we? Or or the divine. But the Greeks did. The Greek gods were hedonists. The Greek gods were hedonists, and immortality didn't do very much for them. Didn't, Didn't actually, I mean, immortality palled, it seems, quite quickly. And it's even suggested, isn't it, in Greek thought, Greek poetry, that they envied the mortal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because they, envied, they, mortal. they envied the possibility of death, which they didn't have. And since they couldn't have it, they had the second best thing, which was to stir terribly destructive wars among these, among these mortals. And, we, and that seems kind of horrific to us, but that was, that was heroic poetry for the Greeks. I think on that note, we have to stop. Thank you. So thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.